Georgia, and it is kind of weird not having all the whole family up there. But you guys look great and comfortable and sounded great either way. So this morning, as I awkwardly figure out how to transition, at least play my um, we're going to continue kind of looking at things that we addressed last week. If you remember all the way back seven days ago, okay, think about everything that you did this last week. Think about where you were this time seven days ago. Many of you were here, and we were in James chapter 2, and we looked at the understanding of faith and works, and we did a little bit of the contrast here and the words that James was speaking and talking about and understanding that faith without works is dead. And this morning we're going to look as we kind of continue this understanding of what is true, authentic faith. We're going to look at this kind of in a different fashion. This morning I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 25 through about 33. And so as you're turning there, um, just a couple of thoughts as we're getting ready for this passage again. This is one that um, if you've been in church for uh, much of your life, it's going to be a text and some words that Christ has spoken that are going to be very familiar to you. And it's one that should cause a great deal of examination and reflection. And it's something that I think is also incredibly important for us to remember. Um, any of us who have a desire for evangelism, whether corporately or personally, we know how much we desire for a person to come to Christ, right? We all have this understanding. As Christians, we want more and more people to come to salvation. We want more and more people to come to a saving faith and to come to a love for Christ. And often when we have conversations with people and we're explaining who Christ is and we're wanting to share the gospel with them, it's very easy at times for us to just want to kind of like move that person into a place of saving faith. We want to give them uh, not just a little bit of a nudge, but at times where it could be a little bit difficult, we kind of want to throw them into it or we want to do whatever it is just to get them into that place. We can often feel this urge or a pull to do anything that we can think of for that person to confess or to say and profess that they are coming to faith in Christ. Because we so badly want them to know who Christ is, at times we can feel this urge, this pull to maybe amend some things or to maybe give only part of the story. Um, this is something that we see so often in many, many churches, and I say that because I've heard it on numerous occasions, but we tend, and oftentimes we tend to amend the message, we tend to alter it, we tend to only share what we determine as the positive things. This is churches, pastors, teachers, individuals who talk nothing about the justice of God or the wrath of God in any way, but simply the love of God, saying that he is only love. And we fail to mention that there is such a thing um, called hell, that there is such a thing of torment, that there is such a thing as justice. And we simply emphasize just love. Now, when I say that, please don't hear me say God is not a God of love because we absolutely know that he is. But both things have to go hand in hand properly weighted. But when we share Christ with a person because we so badly want them to come to faith, you feel, if you've ever had these conversations, you can feel this pull or this urge, whether it's a friend, a stranger, a family member, because you want them to come to faith so badly, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get them to that point. It's so important that as we do that, that we're very, very true and faithful to the message of Christ, to the gospel of Christ, and to who God is in being true to this. In many cases, this has led to manipulating the truth or to giving a false understanding 
of the gospel of Christ. Last week, we looked a little bit about those who profess to have faith but have no works to show for it. And James is authoring his, his, his letter, and he's writing and making it clear that there is no such, a, no such thing as true, authentic, biblical faith that has no fruit to show for it. Fruit is going to be the result of true, authentic faith, of a person who truly trusts in God, who truly knows Christ as Lord and Savior, is going to produce fruit. Why? Not because of their own efforts, but because of the work of the Spirit, because of Christ, because of God promoting that fruit in the life of that person. And so in our efforts of manipulating things to make the gospel more palatable, which is something I know many of us have heard of, a watered-down gospel to where it's just, all you have to do is just say that, that Christ is the Son of God and that he did these things and, and you're good to go and people just say, okay, well, I'll say that this one time and I'll never again think about God. Or I'm just going to live the way that I want to afterwards because if I profess it and just say these words, everything is going to change and everything will be fine. In many cases, this leads to poor teaching, preaching, and sharing that the path to Christ is especially easy. That it is so easy that all you have to do is say a couple words and you're good. Oftentimes, we, we neglect the understanding of transformation that takes place, of being regenerated, moving from death into life. Is there anything easy about that? There's nothing easy about this and this is why Christ's words himself of yes the gate is narrow but so too is the path and this is something that often we forget we know that not many will will cross through the gate the gate is a narrow gate but the path is also very narrow increasingly in our world we have uh, different world systems world religions cultures all of these things seeking to come together with this uh, unitarian mindset of of a uh, Buddhist can be saved can can be in heaven forever and living with God and worshiping him forever because they believe, just they just call him a different God. It's the same one, it's just different. There's also a lot of conversation in this past decade that, that the God of Islam is the same as the God of the Bible. They're the same God, they're just, there's just minor differences but nothing consequential. And so a person who is a Muslim can come to, will be found to have saving faith through Christ in these things. Um, I understand because I'm looking at many of your faces and you're kind of saying, well, that's ridiculous. I absolutely agree with you. That is ridiculous. Um, and I've said it before. A Christian does not want to be unified with the God of the Quran the same way a Muslim does not want to be unified with the Christian's understanding of the God of the Bible. Muslims are not out there preaching, hey, Christians are basically the same as us, so be very kind. Just understand that they too are saved. The same way that Christians should not be preaching, Muslims believe in the same God. They too have saving faith. They are of a like faith, and we should just openly embrace everybody in that. They're incredibly different gods. But so much of the world now is to try to blend everything in this sense of tolerance, whether you're Hindu, uh, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever the case may be, or even just a simple understanding that, hey, there might be a God, the agnostic who says, I just don't know, even that person too, would be saved. And so it's important here that as we understand the gospel that we get these things right. So the gate is narrow. The path too is narrow. And this morning we're going to see one example of how Jesus is going to engage in this understanding of the ease of the path to God. And it's a story. So we're going to be able to move a little bit quickly. It's also going to be very, very, very simple to understand. Uh, incredibly simple. Like painfully simple. But I hope that we don't gloss over it as if it has no effect. Uh, many cases when asked how a person can come to, 
to Christ, how a person can come to God, we, we, our answers may vary, and they can differ all across the board, and some will just, we begin with, it's incredibly simple, just say these things, but yet, have you done, has anyone done a study of how Jesus responds to those questions? Of a person who comes to him and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Or, what must I do to be one of your disciples? What, what are these different things that are required? And he does not simply ever just respond with, hey, just say I'm the Messiah. It's not as if it's just this easy thing where you can just, just say a couple words and things are going to be fine. Every single instance, he gives the person pause. He makes them think about it, makes them reflect upon it, has to make sure that they actually understand what it is that's going on. Because this is not just the same as saying, well, I believe that the Broncos are going to win the game, because they're not, but I'm not from here, so I can say that. All right, this isn't just something where you simply just saying a couple words is going to mean things. How often we say things, we make commitments, we make choices, decisions that for a time we mean well, and the next day we have completely forgotten what it is that has been said. Every instance, here we see uh, the example of Nicodemus, what must happen? He says, you must be born again. This is not just say some things. It's, you have to understand what this is going to mean. There is something to think about, upon. This is going to be reason. This is going to be more than just words in the way that we've committed to everything else in our lives. We must be born again. The rich man comes and says, hey, Lord, I, I've obeyed all of the commandments, so we already understand he's not being honest in the first place. Uh, no one has fulfilled all Ten Commandments perfectly, living out the law. But he comes to him and says, I've done all of these things. And I can imagine the look on Jesus' face of, oh, wow. I actually know you, and I know that you haven't because I'm God. So I know these things, right? But we see the deception of the heart. And of a rich man who comes and Jesus says, okay, well, since everything has gone well, sell everything that you have. Whoa, I don't like that answer. Jesus doesn't just simply say, well, you've done well and you, you desire, so therefore you have been saved. It is okay. Then I, this is what I need you to do. This is what must happen. Why? Because the intention means everything. The reason behind it, it is so important. And here, Jesus, with all these situations, he gives the person a moment to actually reflect, to weigh the costs and how we should also follow in a similar manner of being honest as well as being careful in the way that we approach this. So here we find our text this morning of Luke 14, 25-35. It says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador, and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt 
have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in this time to see your word, to to understand it, to to hear what it is that you have communicated through it. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in it, the preservation of it throughout time and the way that you have constantly sought to communicate with your people. And we're incredibly thankful for the privilege of being able to, each and every day, to be able to go back into your word to see what it is that you have revealed to us about who you are and what you desire from us. God, I pray that as we uh, look at these words of your Son, that we would truly seek to hear them, to understand them, and that we would have a great deal of, of reverence for the words spoken by your Son. Father, I pray too that those who have the ears to hear, to let them hear, that we would reflect upon these things and that we would understand the cost of, of following you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here again, somewhat of a, of a familiar story here, but we see an interaction. And Jesus at this time, as we see so often, verse 25 says, and great multitudes are following him. Um, this is why so often we see him having to hide off by himself. right? We see Jesus constantly having to go and to be alone. Why? Because people were constantly following him. I, I've used this before. If you're the older brother or sister and you have a younger brother or sister who constantly follows you, I was that follower. right? I was the youngest. My brothers are four and five years older. I wanted to go where they were going because it was cool to be with their teenage friends when you're like nine. right? Even though none of them wanted you there, it was cool for me and that was good enough. right? But we understand Jesus is moving around, and many times we can look early on, early on in the ministry. This is essentially the entire city is following him around. This is not just a few people, multitudes, thousands of people following him everywhere that he was going to preach. And as he was engaging in ministry and healing and doing so many of these other things, a great multitude is following him. And we often see him withdrawing, so much so at one point he even gets into a boat to be able to speak so that no one can come right up to where he is. Imagine that, having to be uh, to withdraw enough to be able to speak to people and not be surrounded, that you would climb into a boat to get out to the water to then be able to speak to people. Um, an incredible amount of people following him everywhere that he would go. Christ has already cast out many demons. He has already preached so many times. He has already done so many things, and he has already fed the 5,000. So there's no surprise why people would be following, following him. He's done these incredible miracles. He's done incredible incredible things and people love to see what they perceive as a show right people love to see things that they cannot do that they do not understand it's this at the time it's a spectacle for so many people um, scripture tells us that many were following not because they believed but because they had received the fish and the loaves and they were full they thought man i have some ailments i'm going to go where he goes because he's healing people i don't really know who he is but there, he might heal me and that's awesome or, I'm hungry, and I saw what he did with the fish and the loaves, so I know that he can do this again, and we're going to continue to follow him. It was not anything about him as a person, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as all that he was, but it was about the benefits of going where he was going to go. It's because they liked what it is that he was going to be giving. 
So we see great crowds, great multitudes following him. And then he turns and he says these words unto them. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, that's pretty much all-encompassing, isn't it? That's a long list of, of people. There's no one that's left out here. And in case you're wondering who's left out, he continues on saying, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This is not contingent in any other way. It's saying if he is not able and willing, if the man does not do these things, he cannot be. There's not a caveat here of, well, he can't be unless he just really wants to. Right? There's not these parentheticals here of unless he just really, really wants to. But he makes it very, very clear. It's a warning that all who would desire to come to him have to understand the cost. Now, I know that the, the words can be kind of stunning here of Jesus using the word hate. It's a word that we try not to use in our home. Um, if it's ever said in any context, Benji is very quick to say, we don't say that. Right? It's awesome. He knows that we don't say that because it's not a great word. So that word can initially be a little bit stunning. And it's hard to reconcile initially how are we to, this is telling us to hate these individuals, but yet all of Scripture is telling us that we are to love them. How do we reconcile these things? And this is why it is so important that we don't, we don't just neglect a study of, of original languages, that we don't just take what it is in our English uh, lexicon, because English is not actually an awesome language. Everybody makes fun of us for how we sound. Sounds like we're like speaking with marbles in our mouth. You know, Every other culture makes fun of us, just being honest. Okay? But we go back and we can look in the Old and in the New Testament, and in some cases this word hate does mean hate. In many other cases, not all, but most of them, it's simply meaning to love less. So it's the comparison. And I know for many of you, you're saying, yes, we already know that. Hate is frequently used to simply mean love less. We look at the example of Jacob and the daughters of Laban. And we see the relationship there of Jacob, a man. He's worked for seven years. He's continuing to work hard, saying, yes, I'm going to marry this first love of my life, Rachel. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. This is awesome. We have an agreement. I've worked almost seven years. Imagine the sixth year and 364th day of work. And he says, once I'm clocking out, I get to marry the love of my life. This is incredible. Like, this is how happy some of you guys are if you work on a clock and you're five minutes away, right? And you're going, oh, my goodness. I'm not helping a single customer that comes in. I'm about to leave. This excitement for him, and then what is it that happens? We know that he was tricked. And Laban swaps out his one daughter, Rachel, for Leah, who we know was, let's say, less attractive. Just read that account. It's kind of funny, right? But here we see this of, of this trick, and now it is that he marries Leah and not Rachel. So now what does he do? Does he just give up and say, well, I guess I'm stuck with this? No, he continues to work seven more years. Laban, what a wonderful trickster, got another seven years of labor here. Okay, horrible story in a way, too. You can laugh at it some, some of the parts. But he works seven more years, and he continues to work hard. Why? So that he can have the woman that he loves, this woman, Rachel, and he continues to work and work and work. And then finally, at the end of the seven years, he's able to marry Rachel, his first love. And Scripture says, Did not Jacob hate Leah and love Rachel? Now, does this mean that he hated Leah? Absolutely not. It continues to clarify saying that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. 
It's not as if every time he saw Leah, he said, oh, my goodness, this one. Right? That's not the attitude. He didn't have this disdain for Leah, but he loved Rachel more. Or conversely, he loved Leah less than it is that he loved Rachel. The love which is shown for Christ here, the love that we should have, should make every other love look like hate in comparison to where it is not even close to the same. And for some, it's, well, how do I reconcile this understanding of loving my family so much um, and this way that the Bible tells me I'm to love my family, love my neighbor, all of these different things, and to love yourself, all so much of this. But now here he's saying, if any man is to come to me and does not hate all of this or love them less, then he cannot be my disciple. This is only going to be an issue if we do not understand then what the love of Christ does for us. The love that we have because we love Christ is better than any love apart from Christ. How do you truly love apart from God? We know that God is love, right? Scripture tells us God is love. Then how can you love apart from God? You can't. You can feel things, but you're not going to truly love the way that God had intended. Doesn't the person who truly loves God have a greater capacity to love? Yes or no? We're going to get it closer to Sunday school where we're able to talk back a little bit, right? No one's going to get, like, shuffled out by security or anything, I don't think. Some of you, maybe. Right? When you love God, you truly love and appreciate so much more of other people. How is it that you can truly love your neighbor? First, you have to love God. Because the person who doesn't love God has no desire to love their neighbor. Why? Because it's not for them. We, we favor ourselves apart from God. So this is not a call to abhor, to hate, to have disdain for your friends, your family, your neighbors. This is not Jesus saying you have to desire to have these individuals killed. You have to hate them. That every time you're around for a family meal, you have to look across the table and say, I hate you. Right? Some, this is going to happen at times when someone, never mind, we're not going to get into this. This is a touchy subject. Some of you have family here, so I won't do that. I have family here, so I won't do that. So he's not saying in any way, you are to hate your family, you are to hate your brothers and sisters, you are to hate your neighbors, and you are to hate yourself. Simply, you need to love me and love God so much more than you love anything else. Now tell me, where's the problem with that? It is absolutely incredible when we have these things properly ordered. Where Christ is your all and he is the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your affection. You love him, and then you are going to, by extension, love what he loves, are you not? We've talked about it before. The person who says, I love God, and yet hates their neighbor, what understanding do they have of both a love for God and of his love? It is very flawed. So it's so important that we love God first, by extension, everything else then will follow. Hear what Christ demands of his disciples is that you must love him more than all others and more than yourself. And then he says in verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Unless you are willing to bear your cross as he must bear his, you cannot be his disciple. And these are the verses that, as we see, he's going to later, he's going to illustrate here in a moment. But this is why I find it so difficult to tell a person all you have to do is just say that you believe that Christ 
was the Son of God. And you know, there are many who have testified to these things in Scripture, and yet, what has Jesus said of them? It, it, there's so much more than just saying a few words. And, and please don't hear me saying these things and saying, well, you know, what about these different passages? But there has to be a change. There has to be an effect. There has to be a desire then. There's, it's going to be affirmed, right? Is, it not, is there not going to be fruit of true, genuine salvation? Is there not going to be a desire to know him? Because the person who says, I love God, yet has no desire to ever learn about him in his word, to ever go to him in prayer, to ever commune with the people of God, I have a very, very difficult time biblically saying that is true, authentic, genuine faith. Because God does not desire that his people are completely detached from one another or from himself, right? That's why all the language that we see in the book of John about abiding in him, right? All of these different things, it's constant communion, it's constant things, constant devotion. This is not a half-hearted, yeah, you can come and follow me if you believe that I'll just make some loaves and you're hungry or that I can provide for you in this way. It's sure, yeah, you can, you can follow me, you can be my disciple, but first you have to love me above all else. You have to love the Lord your God above all other things. And I know that we can say that, yes, that's important, but it's difficult, is it not? How constantly we have to die to self, how constantly we have to rightly order these things. Unless you're willing to bear your cross as he is going to bear his, you cannot be his disciple. When Jesus says these words, this is not simply an illustration of saying this, this metaphorical idea, right? He's going to actually bear a cross, the cross which would kill him, the one which would actually allow his disciples and those who would believe upon him to be redeemed because of what he did on the cross. This is not a metaphor of saying, well, you might get persecuted or you might have some issues, this is not, these aren't just metaphors. This is him saying, this is going to be happening to you. We've gone through it so many times before. What are you promised in this life? It's not a bunch of prosperity, but it's a whole you know, healthy dose of suffering, persecution, all of these things. And it constantly is telling us to endure, to be willing to endure these things, to bear this cross, to come after him. We frequently see cases of people who who have died and been martyred for their faith, right? We, we look at these situations and we see that and say, wow, what an incredible testament and testimony that is to the, to the faith, not of that person, but to how great our God is. And we look at that and say, wow, incredible, incredible faithfulness to God there. And yet we also know there's, there's cases and even in our own minds we can reason away if okay, if we're in those situations and a person has a gun to your head and says, are you a Christian? And you, start to, you can kind of start to reconcile in your mind, okay, if I say no, I can live longer, so then I can talk about Christ to more people. Well, there, there goes that whole testimony, right? Because that's the understanding that so many people can go through. And it's this understanding of we are more important than what it is that can be done through that testimony of a missionary who goes and endures a little bit of persecution, immediately withdraws from the field and says, man, I just, I don't know if I want to do that. I think I can, I'll do better in America where there's less persecution because I can be more effective in my witness. Or, or the person who endures any conversation or any kind of persecution in so many of these different ways and saying, well, I know that I'll be a better use for God as long as I'm living, when there's a lot of examples that the most effective testimony we can ever have is going to be in our death. I know that's not really an attaboy and go get them kind of thing, 
right? I know none of you are like raising up to just go out there and, you know, go be people. But that's the truth, right? These incredible stories of those who have died for the faith and how much greater that testimony is. Why? Because it's the courage of their convictions. How firmly are you going to rely on a person's testimony who denies Christ before an individual and then later says, well, I just did that so that I can share Christ with more people. I mean, the, the testimony there has been completely shattered. It's being willing to die. This is, again, these things are not just metaphoric language. This is not just as long as these things don't actually happen. You need to, as a true disciple of Christ, not only to not be ashamed, but you should be willing to be beaten, to be mocked, to be killed because of that. And I do understand that in our culture, and we all enjoy the comforts here in this Western civilization and these things, but there could, there, time may be coming. I don't know when. It could be tomorrow. It could be 300 years. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, so I'm not going to you know, tell you guys. But the day could come where you are going to be challenged on this, and you have to. You have to be willing to take stands. We see this publicly all the time, and whether it's in business or other situations and people not standing firm for the faith because of some other benefit. He demands of his disciples that they are willing to bear their cross, that they are willing to forsake all else that they have to follow him. He's going to go and he's going to illustrate this in terms so that they could understand this well. It says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it? I know some of you have done housing projects or in whatever line of work that you may be in, if you're in construction, if you're an architect, if you're in any kind of situation like this, you're saying, oh, there's plenty of these people, right? There's plenty of people in this valley that don't understand how much things are going to cost, and they start a project, and halfway through, they have to stop it, right? Um, I hear stories about this all the time here, whether it's a touchy subject again. I get that, right? But how foolish it is to sit down. Go, you're going to build this tower. You're going to build a house, and you dig out the foundation. You've you got the basement ready and good. You're going to continue, and you say, hey, so we're out of money, and we're, we can't finish this project. Well, now where are you going to live? You're going to live in the foundation, right? That's all you got. How foolish that would be. And then it even says here in, in, at the end of verse 29 and 30, these people that see this, it's not able to be finished, all that look at it, and they begin to mock. And they say, that was clearly not the intention. People are probably not just digging out foundations to live in. There's probably intending to be more at some point. And so they begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. How foolish that would be to sit down for something that is so massive, but yet never count the costs. If you're not a builder, he gives this other illustration here. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Not only a builder who builds without knowing if he can complete the project, but of a king who goes to war without first counting the cost of simply being able to understand that I do not have what it takes to, to win this war. How foolish it would be to engage in such things. Some of you greatly enjoy history, and if you do, you're probably my favorite people here. If you don't, you're also my favorite. Right? But I love history. I think there's so much that we can learn from it, not even just biblical history, but we can even look at the history of our, of our nation, the history 
throw out all the world, and we see so many of these different examples. But we look at, you can look back to the Civil War, and you recall the North thought that they were going to win this thing, like, hands down, just a few weeks. So much so that when they began, a lot of the wealthy women in Washington, they would get their carriages, and they would go to be able to watch these battles, thinking, eh, it's just going to be a week or two vacation. Because all the industry, all the military power, all of these things belonged to the North, and it was going to be so simple. Civil War went on for four years. That's not a weekend stay, right? But what's interesting is that they didn't properly count the cost of these things. And we, we don't have a great national history in so many circumstances here. But as they go and they weren't properly counting the cost, they thought, well, this is going to be easy. We can just do these things. But for the North to win, they were going to have to conquer the South. They were going to have to take it state by state. They were going to have to take over land. It was going to be a war fought by conquering. And the South simply just had to do what? Outlast them, right? They just had to play defense. They just had to survive. They had to withstand the attacks. They didn't have to move forward. They didn't have to conquer. They had to last. And they lasted a very, very long time. Obviously, we know how that went and how that was brought to an end, but the South merely had to outlast the North in order to win. Um, this is familiar with the Revolutionary War. Civil War doesn't do it for you, right? I'm super excited going through this stuff, by the way. My father would be very proud. The colonists simply had to outlast the British, right? Smaller in number, resources, all of these different things, but there's something about defending your home that gives you more resolve than just conquering and adding on to something, right? The person with something to lose is the one who's going to be uh, have the most resolve in these things. The British were simply seeking to conquer, and the colonists were defending what they had as home, and they needed to simply outlast the British. So this is the difference between a war of conquest, which we see so many different cases, and, and wars of attrition, where it's just outlast, and eventually the cost will be too great, and these individuals will, will relinquish themselves from that situation. Um, our, our nation used to be one which was much more of, a, of attrition, of we will protect ourselves, we will stay here, we will be, have our resolve, and we will be protected, where in the last number of decades we've been much more branching out, much more in a conquest manner. And, and wars have not very much been favorable to our nation, and they seem to be never-ending, and it seems to be very, very difficult. And yet we see these small little countries all over the world having such great resolve and just needing to outlast. Probably the greatest example of this is Vietnam. And so we can look all throughout this, and again, as we're getting closer, some of you are very much familiar. Some of you um, may have even been a part of that or been around it. We understand the difference that it takes in these different wars. Counting the cost is crucial. Any circumstance, this is why you budget for things in life. This is why in any circumstance you have to count the cost because there's always a cost, nothing is free, right? We know that, especially in America, nothing is free. If someone says free, wait for it to be taxed, something bad's gonna happen, okay? Nothing is free. But Jesus is making it clear here that there is a cost in being his disciple. It's not this cheap thing. He's saying to count the cost and ask yourself simply, can I afford this? You wanna come and be my disciple, can you afford to lose these things? Are you willing to come after me to take up a cross and to love me more than you love all else? He gives them reason to actually pause on it so that it's not just this passing thing that they're just going to say, do one day, and tomorrow completely forget. It's going to be something that they have decided and that they have, they're making a firm, firm commitment understanding the cost of these things. 
It is not a cheap grace that God gives. And again, continuing with the theme of history, as I love so much, many of you are probably familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a uh, clergyman and theologian in Germany back during World War II, and he was a man who um, was part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Um, we're not going to argue the ethics of that right now. But we see what it is that's going on there, and he was part of this, this plot back in World War II to have him assassinated. When that was discovered, he was arrested and later would be executed for it. But as he wrote so many things, he wrote one of the best books on discipleship titled The Cost of Discipleship. It's a book that I read early on in college, and I was telling Brittany uh, last night I should probably reread it because there's a lot of things I didn't truly appreciate back when I read it the first time. But he, he coins this phrase of cheap grace. This is what we would understand as easy believism. It's just, yeah, just say that you believe something and it'll be good. And this is so often what is preached and what is taught and what we can be desiring so much in conversation. This is um, back to, this, to a story of, of a woman who goes in to have an abortion and she has the, the fish on her car, right? And she has these stickers about Jesus and it is very clear that she is a Christian by these exterior things and she goes in to have the abortion and the doctor says, ask her, are you a Christian? She says, yes. He says, then why are you here? Why are you doing this then? Because he understands. That's, that's not something a Christian should do. It's not okay. And her response is, well, I'm doing this because I know that Jesus is going to forgive me. I know that God is going to forgive me because of his grace. Imagine that presuming grace upon a willful sin that you're going to commit, just simply doing it and saying, well, I know that God's going to forgive me anyways, right? God's a God of grace. The Bible tells us that he's going to extend grace. This is why Paul talks so fiercely about this in Romans chapter 6. You don't continue in sin just for grace to be present. But imagine that, presuming that you can live any way that you just want to because you know that you're going to be forgiven. Does that sound like you understand grace? Does it sound like you understand forgiveness in any kind of way? Try that in any relationship that you have. Try that in your marriage. Do whatever it is that you want to do, knowing because, well, I know this, I know my spouse, and I know that they're always going to forgive. You have no, no understanding of forgiveness. There is no love in that. And so he talks about this understanding of cheap grace, that it's just something you can just, you're going to be presuming upon grace, and you, just because you intellectually know these things to be true, you just act as if you understand it all. But he, he writes about it, and this is going to be lengthy, but we'll, we'll kind of close in this. Understanding the cost of grace and the cost of, of discipleship, he writes, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were, brought, you were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation 
of God. Yeah, there's a cost, but there is still grace. The cost of all of these things. And I love the way that he puts it. It costs a man his life, but it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. You know, here as he writes these things and as we understand from the whole of Scripture, and even here in verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Christ is not a means to get what we've always wanted. I mentioned this in Sunday school. This is not, I desire these things so greatly and so much, so I'm going to believe upon Christ so that I can receive all of these different things that I've always wanted from the beginning. He's not a means to be able to achieve these things, but what's so incredible, and Bonhoeffer understands this, and so many of you guys do as well, but never forget that he is the one who is the prize, right? The pearl that you find, the treasure in the field, it's not the things that you've always wanted, your hopes and dreams of a great successful job, of incredible wealth, of all of these other things that so often we get caught up in. What's the prize? It's him. The, he is the one, he is the means and the way to receive him. Now that doesn't work totally well with, with math, right? We like to say this plus this equals here. But he is the one that is the prize. He is how we attain the prize. He gives us himself. And when you truly understand who he is, what he's done, the incredible cost that it was to even receive the gospel, the cost of his life, and yet the grace, and that God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. The cost was his life. The grace, we have the only true life, and that's through him, by him, for him, everything we know to be true. And here he makes it very, very clear. This is not just a simple understanding of we can just say, yes, I believe in God, and we can um, just intellectually understand these things, but it's going to change the person. We know the true Christian is a new creation. You, you believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior. You, see, you desire to obey him. You desire to commune with him in prayer through study of, of his word, through fellowship with other believers. You desire, you are a completely new person. And some of you have family members who knew you prior to Christ and who know you now, and they say, holy cow, not even the same person. It's not even close. So he makes it clear there is going to be a cost, but it's worth it. The cost is worth it. Only those apart from Christ live their best life now. And then he closes in these last two verses. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, to hear, let him hear. Saying salt without its saltiness, without its flavor, it's not even good enough for the dunghill. Imagine that. Not even good enough for that? Wow. Christ has made a way, the only way, and he did so at the cost of his own life. And when he says to to bear your own cross and come after me. This is something that he modeled perfectly. Now we know that it's because of him and what he did that we too are able to be called his disciple. It's not just, yeah, I believe that there was probably a person named Jesus, but it completely changes and affects the way that you do everything in your life. Relationships internal with yourself, with other people. Understanding the cost 
of following Christ, but always returning with. But it is so incredibly worth it. It's going to cost me the things that I desire in the flesh, but how much more are we going to receive the sufferings of this life, the humiliation that you may endure in daily conversations because of your faith, not even close to be compared to what we will receive in heaven. Just the incredible, incredible hope that comes with that. I'm incredibly thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for making it clear in your word that you have called us to follow you at, at the cost of, of ourselves, of, of all things, that we, we forsake all things so that we may come to you, that you are to be the true prize of our affection, the true intent of our heart, the thing that we desire to, to be with most, that all other relationships and all other things would pale in comparison to our love for you. And God, as we, as we learn more about you, as we know more of who you are, and as we see you clearly showing yourself in your word, we understand that as we truly love you more and more, that'll extend to our marriages, to our relationship with our children, to our relationship with others in the church, others in the world, others in the workplace. As we see others as those who you too have created and those who who may not know you at this time, that we understand that those who have come to a saving faith in you, we understand that we too were, were in that place where we were also blind to your, to your word, blind to the gospel. We were blind to seeing you for who you are. And God, I pray that as we desire as a church and as people to, to show you and to make you known, that we're careful in noting the cost, that it is not just a simple passing belief that we just have to say at one point in our lives that we, we believe that there is a God, but that we truly understand the cost of following you, that we understand the cost of being called your disciple, that, that it may mean, and even likely so, the cost of maybe a position in a school or a job or whatever the case could be, that we may endure humiliation, that we may suffer in so many of these different ways that you've even promised we are going to, to suffer, but that you give us the strength to endure. You've called us as your disciples to endure through the suffering. And then it's through our suffering that we grow closer and, and closer to you, that you promote holiness within us, that we're sanctified through suffering, that we, we learn obedience through suffering, and that it's for our good and for your glory. God, we thank you for the constant truth of your word that it makes it clear to us that you are the only true God, that you are the one who has sent your son to, to die on the cross for our sins, the one who has come and humbled himself in the form of a servant, coming in the form of a man, the, the incarnation that we know of, of Christ. And as you ministered to people, showing who you are, showing who he himself was, what it is that he was to do, and the constant obedience to the Father that he showed. God, I pray that if there's any here today that that have not come to you in, in repentance and in faith and 
recognize you as Lord and as Savior and trusted upon the work of Christ for salvation, for the redemption that we are so desperately in need of, I pray that you would draw them to you today, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would continue to reveal yourself through your word and and show yourself to them. And, and for those here that that are saved, that have known you either for a short time or for a very, very long time, I pray that we would yet again be reminded of the cost of following you, that, that we would be willing to endure, to be bold, to be courageous, to take stands in the, the marketplace and even in the church and even just in any other situation that we may come across, that we would be willing to take a stand for you, that we would stand upon your word, that we would make you known, that we would desire to share you with others. God, we know that there is no greater message, no greater gift that we can give to another person than the, the knowledge and the understanding of you. And I pray that you would continue by your spirit to to enable us to faithfully study your word, to be able to faithfully give your word that a person may come to know you through the hearing of it. God, we're thankful for your, the redemption that you've offered, the salvation that we've received. And we praise you and give you all the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.